Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So hi, everyone. Welcome to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we have a real treat for you. We have Michael Mazar, a researcher at the RAND Corporation, who is currently working on a very interesting project. He's the head researcher for a project called Building a Sustainable International Order. And if you don't know what that means, we're going to dive into it. Yeah, Michael is the associate director of RAND's Arroyo Center for Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program. And he's worked as a professor at the U.S. National War College. He's worked on Capitol Hill, and he's been a special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff all before coming to RAND. So Michael brings with him a whole lot of experience, and we're really excited to have him on the show. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Really delighted to be here. So, Michael, why don't we just start off with sort of a, a context question. What is the international order anyways, and how is it different from the international system? Yeah, it's it, it sounds like um, a really generic term, but in fact, it refers to something, at least in the post-1945 world, that's pretty specific and pretty important to the United States. And that is the set of international institutions, organizations, and the rules and norms that they uh, promulgate that the U.S. helped to set up. So the United Nations is kind of the... Uh, foundational institution of the post-war order, and then you have the major international economic institutions like the World Bank, uh, the IMF, the GATT and World Trade Organization uh, trade process. You have regional organizations like the European Union and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and then a a huge network of literally hundreds of different uh, organizations and treaties ranging from the non-proliferation treaty restricting nuclear weapons to the bank of international settlements that helps to coordinate international monetary policy and on and on and the united states even during world war ii u.s leaders started to to look around and think the cause of war that emerged in the 30s was partly a fragmentation of the international system into regional blocks and a sense of kind of competitive economic you know, trade policies, protectionism that helped to bring on the Great Depression. And they wanted to create a set of international institutions that would provide a way for countries to avoid that kind of outcome, uh, to rationalize their common interests and to create kind of an overarching sense of interdependence and cooperative assumption that would keep the international system stable and give it a sense of equilibrium. And in a lot of ways, this system has done that to the point where today you have even countries like China and Russia that are pushing against U.S. power in different ways and uh, being belligerent in some, in some manner they still repeatedly say that they support the UN system, they believe in an international order of shared rules, and they don't want the whole thing to collapse. So we've built this interlocking set of institutions, which is more than just the international system, which kind of refers to just world politics as a general phenomenon. We've set up this very conscious intentionally constructed set of organizations and rules that have created an international system that is more ordered, more predictable, more stable than most of the ones we've had before in history, 
did that with U.S. power. And so it's been really important in the United States because we now have this international order that means that U.S. power doesn't have to bear the whole burden of promoting stability if that's what we want, if that's in our interest. We've got institutions and rules and norms that help do that along with us. It's been a U.S. experiment. It's been a U.S. process. It's become increasingly shared, and it's really important to U.S. interests of peace and prosperity. That's fascinating. So the project that you're working on at RAND right now is called Building a Sustainable International Order. And given the history of the post-war order, why is there a need for such a project right now? And what exactly is your research going to be focusing on? Yeah, so we've been working on it for over a year. And the, the rationale for it is that this grand international order that I described that's done so much, uh, first of all, sort of during the Cold War within the West, it had a, a major effect. And then after 1989, became more global. That order is now under unprecedented threat. And for a couple of big reasons, and there, there's a variety of things, and this is part of the research we've done is the nature of the threat and how significant they are. But there, there's two big ones. And one is geopolitical. And that is that after years of U.S. predominance, uh, first within the West and then globally, a number of other countries, not only Russia and China, but also including like Turkey and Brazil and Indonesia and South Africa, have said, you know, this has been great to have this U.S.-led order, but we are rising powers. We're important players on the international scene, and we demand more of a voice in inside these institutions so whether it's something like the voting shares in the IMF, or we demand more uh, of a role in setting up institutions. So China's effort to create what they call the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is potentially sort of a competitor to the World Bank within Asia. And we demand more of an influence in determining how big crises are going to come out. So, for example, Russia's role in Syria these other rising countries or countries that are demanding more status are essentially saying this order has got to become more multilateral, more equitable, more shared, and we demand more of a voice in it. So that's one set of challenges that have, have come forward to the order. The other is this wave of populism that has been going on for a number of years. Uh, it's now you know pretty well cataloged in terms of the rise of a bunch of right-wing European countries, the rise of nationalism, some Asian countries, the populism that uh, was behind part of the Trump phenomenon here. You've got individual political leaders and parties all around the world questioning the basic assumptions on which the order is built. Assumptions like integration is a good thing, globalization is a good thing, neoliberal economics of open markets and open trade is a good thing. The easy spread of people in terms of migration is a good thing. All of those are tied in with this order, although they're not quite the same thing. And so this rebellion against globalism, as it's often said, is turning into a reaction against many specific institutions of the order, like trade treaties, like the United Nations, and so on. So in the European Union. So you got these two big challenges coming up, geopolitical and ideological that are calling into question whether we can have a sustainable order at all. And what the future international order looks like is now in great question. So that's basically the purpose of the study is to say, all right, you know, what's the status of it? What are the threats? And if the United States wants to have some kind of international order that continues to support its interests, but if that order is going to have to look different, then what are our options? What could it look like? And what should U.S. policy seek in a future international order? Those are all the questions that we're trying to look at in this study. One of the questions that our listeners might have is, we mentioned ordering mechanisms like the WTO and GATT. When we say ordering mechanism, what do we mean by that? Well, we basically mean the pieces. That's one of the complicated things of defining what this is, is it's really, hmm. there, there's a lot of parts to the order. So a bunch of individual trade institutions and treaties, you know, the World Trade Organization, the WTO's dispute resolution mechanism, for example, because the WTO, World Trade Organization, is the most binding institution of any that's been set up. And, and the members agree to submit themselves to this binding arbitration from the dispute resolution mechanism. 
so for example, if the United States were to take some some uh, impose some tariffs uh, over the coming year on trade, other countries could take us to the WTO and potentially get a judgment against the United States as we have gotten against against others. But that's one piece. There are alliances, NATO and the U.S. alliances with Korea and Japan are typically held to be part of the order. So it's a complicated thing, but it basically starts with this foundation of the United Nations system. And there's then lots of individual pieces that go with that, like the UN Development Organization, UN Development Program. Um, and then on top of that was built these economic and trade institutions. You've got U.S. alliances, a lot of security treaties like the Test Ban Treaty and the Nonproliferation Treaty, and you have this kind of proliferation of organizations, agreements that in total become known as the post-war order. And figuring out which ones are most important or which ones we could live without is really difficult to do. And then all that raises a really interesting question of have we created something whose sum is greater than the or whose whole is greater than the sum of its parts? Is there now a general kind of habit of operating in a, in a multilateral way, in a way that's governed by rules and norms? Do we have now a sense that, you know, if China were to just send a bunch of Chinese Marines to grab an island in the contested areas in the South China Sea, that our response can be based on a general global agreement that there are certain rules that we all play by now? If that's the case, then we've started to create some really useful international norms. But that's another piece of this thing we call the international order, which is the, the general habits that it's, it's creating. So this order is a complex thing, and it's analytically it's really difficult to get your hands around. There's no question. But it's something that starts with this baseline of the United Nations and all of its kind of constituent uh, organizations that are part of the UN system, the UN Security Council, which sort of reflects, symbolizes the fact that there's a few countries that that, that really have to agree on, on um, major steps like going to war or taking aggression. And then this whole set of other institutions that's built on top of that, um, ordering mechanisms really are the pieces of that system. And part of what we're trying to study is, are there some ordering mechanisms that are more important than others? If the United States has limited resources, which ones do we invest in and which ones can we downplay? Interesting. Now, in your paper, and for the sake, for our reader or listener's sake, sorry, I am referring to one particular paper called Understanding the Current in International Order. And this is one paper of several that already exist, and there will be more published as a part of this RAND project. But this is the paper I'm referring to. And in this paper, you talk about both intentional and unintentional ordering mechanisms. What, what's the difference? Well, that, that gets to this idea of kind of organizations as opposed to norms. So like an intentional thing is the United States decides we need a treaty to help constrain nuclear proliferation. And we think that if we can get countries to sign up to that, it'll be good. It's our goal, it's our interest, but if we get a treaty that supports it, that's great. So we send out diplomats to intentionally rally people to a specific institution, the Nonproliferation Treaty. We create it, we shape it, you know, whether it's the, the original General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade or the NPT, whatever it is. It's something that we decide we want to build. Unintentional mechanisms are things, and there's a huge literature on this, of how this happens and are kind of norms that arise around all of that. So, for example, within the UN Charter, there are certain restrictions on interstate aggression and, and a general rule against that. But a number of scholars have argued that over the last 70 years, there's arisen a, uh, a territorial integrity norm that's basically a really powerful underlying habit or sense that unlike 100 years ago or 200 years ago when countries would just look at their neighbor and think, you know, there's some nice um, farmland there I'd like to have. Let's go grab it. Today, there is a very strong prohibition 
on the intentional violation of sovereign territory that has arisen not necessarily because the United States intentionally said, we want to create that, but out of sort of the, the general set of interactions around the international order, the interests of different states have led to this taken for granted habit or norm that wasn't necessarily intended, but, but kind of arose. And that's one of the things that makes this international order such a challenge to analyze is because it is a combination of things that different states intentionally set out to create or do and kind of habits that emerge in what's called a socially constructed way, just kind of out of naturally out of interactions. The first of those things tend to be very interest-based, like we know what we want, we're going to intentionally create something. The second category are things that can change world politics in difficult to measure and quantify, but ultimately even more important ways, because you end up with a system where everybody has certain habits that keep things from happening that we don't even need intentional institutions to stop anymore. And how those two categories relate to one another, which intentional actions we take that strengthen or weaken some of the habits, that's all part of what U.S. strategy has to take into account when we're thinking about how we approach the order. One of the things you mentioned was that in some of these, in a number of these intentional ordering mechanisms, um, which the United States seems to be leading, they're created out of interest. And I think one of the things that our listeners might be curious about is if you could sum up the interests, the key interests of the United States in the world, what would you say those are? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And that's and, and one of the actually one of the you know debates that we're we've begun to have through this political campaign, not only from President elect Trump, but also from from earlier candidates like Rand Paul, is since 1945, the United States has defined its interests in the context of a certain view of its world role. So, you know, we accepted the role of the international sponsor of peace and prosperity, the dominant country that was going to take the burden of doing what was necessary to pursue its its interests. Now, U.S. national security documents typically list a set of six or seven different national interests. They, of course, begin with security of the homeland. But I'd say, you know, you can boil them down to two basic things, peace and prosperity. Uh, the United States has wanted to avoid large-scale regional war or other kinds of major conflict that would disrupt the international system and potentially come back to hurt us at home. And we wanted to create an international system that promotes our prosperity, but also in the context of other people's prosperity through mutually beneficial trade. So most of the interests boil down to those two things. And most Americans, I think, would support that. The question is, how do you get them? And the theory of U.S. strategy since 1945 is you get them by creating an international system, an international order that creates a supportive general situation or context for those things. The idea has been we can't have peace just by having enough force to make sure that nobody would invade the United States. Because the United States is the international sponsor, if there's war in Korea, we're going to go fight that. So we need to deter conflict every place. In that context, an order you can imagine is, is really useful because it creates all these alliances and institutions and norms and habits that can help restrain war, promote prosperity globally. If the United States said, you know what, we're changing our assumptions about our world role. We're no longer the global sponsor of all of this stuff. We are going to deal in a transactional way with individual other countries to promote specific interests. We're going to define those interests more narrowly by whether Americans are being attacked at home and whether Americans are prosperous at home. We don't really care about anything else. We're not responsible for it anymore. In that kind of mindset, uh, obviously U.S. security policies, U.S. economic policies, but also the kind of order that we would seek would change significantly. And so a big question for the coming four years, you know, a couple of years as we get into this new administration, 
is how significantly the underlying assumptions of U.S. grand strategy get upset, or do you have a situation where all the constraints of Congress and uh, the bureaucracy and U.S. allies and everything else mean that we arrive at a place four years from now where the U.S. grand strategy really hasn't changed that much. But all that just bears on how the, the basic interests we're seeking in the international uh, system are pretty straightforward. The more important and interesting questions are, what's our strategy for, for benefiting those interests? We've had one overall global strategy since 45, and the question now is whether we're going to have something different. So the U.S. strategy, I think in your paper you write that the order that we've created is a liberal hegemony, and liberal being like classic liberalism, free trade, free people, human rights, stuff like that, where the U.S. is, as you say, the sort of global sponsor. What other options are there? And if we look back in history, what have some of the other sort of general orders been that could potentially recur in the future? Yeah, so I'll give you a couple of examples. One would be uh, really a great power order. So in the 19th century, probably the most successful international order that existed before the modern era was what's typically called the concert system or the Vienna system. It started, uh, most of these things tend to crop up after a big war. So after the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, you had a bunch of big European powers sit down and say, man, that was kind of exhausting. What can we do to avoid that again? And it also happened that you had a lot of monarchies, and this gets to the ideological agreement that you need for an order. You had a lot of monarchies that were very afraid of the emerging, kind of ironic, the emerging liberal movements at that time that were trying to promote democratic systems in Europe and get rid of monarchies. So, so they all kind of sat down and agreed, all right, let's have a few rules of the road here that allow us to avoid war with one another and focus on managing our domestic situation so that we can keep ourselves in power. And you had the, all the great powers get together and agree on basically respecting each other's interests, respecting each other's sovereignty, and finding ways of making sure that kind of lower level disputes, like who was going to own a certain colony or something, didn't escalate to create major conflict. You could imagine something in the future where we would sit down in particular with Russia and China, but then the tough question would be who's a great power and who's part of the system. India would certainly demand to be or would presumably demand to be. Some others might. But you would sit down with the great powers and say, you know what, I'm not so concerned about human rights or I'm not so concerned about the status of Ukraine or Taiwan. Let's just work out a system where we respect each other's interest and accommodate each other's interests among the great powers and avoid war and do it that way. And that would lead to some very different policies for the United States. You know, as I say, for example, we would probably, in an inverse of what the administration, the incoming administration has been signaling, we'd go to Taiwan and say, you know what, we are no longer responsible for your security. It's your job to work out what's going on with China uh, because we're now basically taking, we're fostering an order where our relations with Beijing are the dominant thing rather than protecting other countries. We go to Ukraine and say the same thing. We'd probably keep some of our major alliances, but in general, that would be an order that's all about the big powers accommodating each other. You could imagine a very different order that in which you have competing ideological systems. So China is pursuing industrial policy. They have a state-led economy. They're using cyber tools to steal intellectual property. They're, it's not a American neoliberal capitalist-style approach, and they're going to double down on that and pull themselves away from stuff like the WTO and try to seek prosperity through state-led growth. Russia does something similar, although much more governed by kind of corruption and, and benefiting state industries. Europe maybe goes off into a much deeper social democratic experiment. and the, So you could end up with different regions, different major powers, really pulling out of a lot of the shared institutions as they pursue very distinct ideological approaches. That could potentially be, of course, a really dangerous uh, future. There's definitely some trends underway that suggest we're beginning to move in that direction. But 
those are just two examples, and you could have a variety of others, but two examples of different kinds of orders that would end up with a world that looks dramatically different than the world we have today. I think the example of... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The concert of Vienna is, is a pretty interesting one. You know, after these Napoleonic Wars, you had one system of alliances in the West and another basically based on balance of power and another, the Holy Alliance, based on this concept of legitimacy or shared interest. And basically the linchpin was if there was ever an aggressor, you had the United Kingdom, which really didn't want to be involved in continental affairs, stepping in and saying, okay, now, now we're going to get involved. We're going to beat back the continental hegemonic aspirant. I believe it's Kissinger who advocates for a similar role for United States today, except instead of on the European continent for the entire world. Do you think that this is a realistic option? Do you think that U.S. domestic sentiment might impact the types of ordering mechanisms that are available to policymakers? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, and, and you're right. And it's not just Kissinger. I mean, that in, in most orders, you need somebody to play that ultimate balancing role, that state that's going to kind of have a preponderant or at least decisive level of power that it can bring into the system when somebody's about to undertake aggression and say, no, you might want to think twice about that. And of course, one of the arguments about both world wars is that in the years leading up to them, Britain didn't play that role as strongly as the system expected them to or needed them to. So in both cases, they're signaling to Germany about the degree to which they would respond, the decisiveness which with they would respond to aggression wasn't strong enough. So that leads to the argument that happened after 45. And as you say, this phrase, and John Eikenberry uses it, it's a liberal hegemonic order, which sounds kind of contradictory, but it was hegemonic in the sense that the U.S. dominated it, liberal in the sense that we're promoting liberal values of open economics and open politics. But that hegemonic piece was really important because without, without a leading power to sort of draw some limits, the order could have spun out of control. And that's the worry today is that if the United States were to say, we're pulling out of NATO, uh, we're not going to defend Taiwan, we're not, gonna, uh, we're not so worried about Korea can defend itself, uh, our allies are not doing enough, that you'd have the same situation that you ended up having in 1913 and 1939, which is a potential aggressor somewhere could say, you know what, the United States now no longer has the willpower to play this balancing role. We could get away with something and the U.S. won't respond. And you get kind of an analog a little bit to like a 1950 situation where the Soviet Union and North Korea decided, you know, the U.S. probably isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to respond if we attack South Korea. The problem is once that attack occurs, it looks like such a violation of international peace that the U.S. feels like it actually has to respond, just like Britain did in the two world wars. 
So you get an argument that Kissinger, a lot of others make, is it's a lot cheaper to be clear in playing this balancing role than to pull away from it, let a war happen, and then decide afterward, you know what, we actually do have to respond to that. Our interests, the interests involved are too great, and we can't let this big aggressor get away with aggression. So you put your finger right on it. The dominant question today is, does the United States have the political willpower and the interest kind of in a, in a political sense in still playing that role? I think like we've looked at a lot of public opinion data in this study. There's a lot of evidence that the majority of Americans still believe that the United States gets benefit from being the predominant military and geopolitical power. They still see the rationale for our international role. And I think the American, in my, my gut says, the American people would be satisfied if you sort of tweaked the U.S. role and the way it interacts with others by like getting a handful of allies to contribute a little bit more in burden sharing, by publicizing what the allies already do, which is extensive in supporting us in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere, counter piracy. And then maybe by adjusting the U.S. commitments in a couple of minor ways, you could look at some places where the U.S. military commitments could be, could be adjusted. Part of all that also relates to we've got to find a new model for how we promote human rights and liberal values because the interventionist model has really kind of run its course. So if you do all that sort of tweaking stuff, I think the American people, my sense is the American people would say, okay, we basically understand the rationale for this international order. We understand the rationale for American global power. We don't want to give it up. And now you sort of prove to us that the allies are doing a little bit more. We've cut back in some areas where we had some overreach. And I think that could be sustainable for a long period of time. I think the willpower still exists for that. It hasn't been cut out from under the whole support for U.S. internationalism. So I think you've kind of hinted at this idea that I think is interesting, which is public sentiment in the U.S. and how the sense of our identity in the world impacts how we're able to move. I don't have polls to point to for this, but it seems like the American people, when they think about our foreign policy approach, they're generally averse to the concept of, quote, national interest, right? Ever since we really kind of emerged on the world stage as a global power in World War I, Wilson has been appealing to our founding principles of liberal democracies and being able to encourage free societies everywhere else. Why do you think that we're so averse to this idea of national interest? Well, I don't know if we're averse to it, I think, but you're exactly right that Americans want it, they want it to be couched in the language of the idea that we're not a normal country. We are a, a beacon to the world. We are the country that is leading the world toward greater freedom, peace, and prosperity. We're the exceptional nation. As you know, a lot of other countries have their own versions of exceptionalism and see ours as kind of myopic. But, you know, it's, it's ultimately it's a strength of the American role in the world that we stand for certain values. The trick, though, is obviously because every administration has to balance these things, and, and the places where some of the biggest dilemmas arise are where they perceive short-term interest considerations colliding with our desire to support uh, human rights. For the most part, I mean, that's going to be a constant dilemma, and, I, and I, it won't go away, and I think administrations kind of balance that and find ways to to fulfill the Wilsonian dream while still promoting specific interests. The place where I think it's gotten really challenging and where where that line of Wilsonian thinking went so far that it that it really had to be corrected was in the so-called liberal interventionist agenda that's arisen since 1985 starting significantly in the Balkans and Somalia and running through some of the justific, well, running through Libya, really, and now Syria to an extent, where this idea of responsibility to protect and the idea that if another country is abusing its people in significant ways, it is the responsibility of the international community led by the United States to go over there and do something about it. That is an idea that I think is beyond 
U.S. willpower, beyond U.S. capabilities, clearly beyond the concept of Wilsonianism, uh, Wilsonianism that the American people are willing to support. And one of the challenges for the next few years is to say, okay, we're a Wilsonian power, we're a liberal power. How can you be a liberal power if you're not intervening in places where there are terrible human rights abuses? What's your agenda that says to the world, we're powerfully promoting all these great values, and if something crops up in Rwanda and we don't respond immediately, people won't say, you know, look, you're, you're not living up to your values because there are four, five, six, ten other ways in which we're promoting that liberal agenda. Balancing that, to me, is a much more immediate challenge than the more generic problem of kind of colliding interests and Wilsonianism. It seems that the other big challenge to the United States holding on to the order as we know it is these rising powers. So if we look at Russia, China in particular, you know, there's some powers you mentioned that want to have a bigger voice in some of these institutions, but it also seems like there are some powers that are actively challenging these institutions. So for example, China creating its own, or working on creating its own bank, um, and also challenging the UN clause ruling on the South China Sea. We have Russia violating the territorial integrity of Ukraine to take territory away. So some of this stuff, um, these guys seem like they are trying to revise the international order and violate some of the key principles of it. The question is, is there, do you think there's a way that the United States can adjust to fold these guys into the international order and make an international order that they're happy with and want to play along with? Or is there going to be sort of inevitable conflict if Russia and China continue to grow and exert themselves? Yeah, so you phrased that question perfectly, and it is the $64,000 question of the international order today. And at one level, the answer is we don't know yet. We just don't know. Because you could imagine a situation where the nationalism in these countries becomes so intense that there's almost no way to satisfy them. And, and they become intent on destroying the international order because, you know, they're so wrapped up in conspiracy theories and, you know, there's no way they'll go along with it. We're not at that point yet. One thing I would say is the country that has carved out the most exceptions to the rules and norms of the international order over the last 30 years or so is unquestionably the United States. So this is part of the problem is because we're the hegemon, we say we can do whatever we want. The International Criminal Court comes along and says we want to have these international standards for prosecuting war crimes. The United States refuses to join. And not only that, we put strong diplomatic pressure on our allies not to join because we're afraid that if U.S. troops are deployed in countries that respect the International Criminal Court, that that might have implications for their being prosecuted. So the, the same UN law of the sea that China is not respecting, we haven't ratified either. We, we operate as if it's in force, but the Senate wouldn't ratify it. We go invade Iraq. We go undertake operations in the Balkans or Libya, where you have some countries in the UN Security Council that, that abstain or in some cases would, would prefer to veto if they want to. So everybody else looks at the United States and says, why are you accusing us of undermining the international order when you guys do whatever you want in regard to these norms and institutions? So part of the challenge is, are we willing to accept the law of the sea more formally? Or would we you know, join the International Criminal Court as a way of signaling that we are willing to be bound by this stuff? In terms of others, just quickly I'll say, it's a, it's a complicated question. We've looked at this in depth in regard to a lot of these specific countries. Uh, let me just use the example of China. Overall, if you look at China's behavior over the last 30 years, there is no country other than the United States that has become more intertwined in the international order than China. They've come a huge way on trade issues, joining the WTO, on climate issues, being the leader with the United States. The agreements that are in place now are kind of weak, but nonetheless, they're leading the international climate discussion, subjecting themselves to international agreements, on uh, non-proliferation, uh, becoming much more involved in supporting most steps to constrain proliferation internationally, being involved, very involved in UN peacekeeping, expanding their foreign uh, economic assistance budget, 
their new international bank in Asia that they're sponsoring has self-consciously said it will operate according to World Bank criteria and principles. And the first six projects it's undertaken have all been undertaken in cooperation with other international institutions as a way of signaling that China is not trying to destroy those rules, but just trying to have more influence within them. So in almost all cases, with the exception of a handful of Russian behaviors recently, what you see is countries still operating under the umbrella of the basic institutions and rules that we've put in place, but saying, I just want more influence. I want more say in how this stuff operates. So I think that that is a signal to me that the answer to your question is, there's definitely room to make them feel like they are co-owners of the system. There's objectively, theoretically room. The question is whether the U.S. domestic context will allow us to accept the compromises and reforms that will be necessary in order for that to happen. And historically, whether you look at UN Law of the Sea, the ICC, votes on expanding IMF representation or voting shares for other countries, it's politically really difficult for the United States to accept more influence for others and binding rules on itself. And if I were pessimistic, it would be about that. It would be about the fact that there's this theoretical way we could all own this more together in a shared way, but that U.S. domestic politics will obstruct us from taking the steps we need to for that to happen, and the order fragments because we're just not willing to share it. So now we've talked a little bit about what the, orders, what the post-war order has been, what alternative orders could look like, how orders are formed. Looking to the future, you know, Eric and I really enjoy George Friedman. He's one of our favorite writers, formerly Stratford, currently Geopolitical Futures. And he thinks the U.S. is going to reemerge as a global hegemon in the middle of the 21st century. And sort of the absolute nutshell version of it is Russia continues to struggle economically because oil prices remain low and there's no reason to think the supply is going to decline in the future. And China is going to struggle to convert from an export base to a consumption economy since a lot of it's been funded with debt. And we will reemerge essentially as the hegemon again. Understanding that there is certainly more research being done on your project team as it relates to this, what's, what's your take? Are we moving towards more, a more multipolar world, or are we going to see a reemergence of a unipolar one in a couple of decades? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really interesting question, and it relates to kind of how you, how you bring time frames into what, how you're thinking about U.S. grand strategy and the international order. There's another writer who's really interesting named Rushir Sharma, who has written a book called The Rise and Fall of Nations and written a number of articles basically saying, you know, look, a lot of these supposed rising tigers China, Russia, but also India, Indonesia, others, Brazil, as we've now seen with Brazil, they have very serious social, economic, political challenges that they need to overcome in order to be the dominant players in the world economy that everybody expects. And his expectation, I think, going along with Friedman's, is that a lot of these countries are going to hit really severe headwinds. China's got a huge housing bubble. They've got an aging population. They've got all kinds of related issues and, and, and potentially rising political challenges as well. You know, we know Russia's challenges. Brazil is already in an economic crisis. So all that leads to the idea that, yeah, you know, for all the, the, the projections of American decline, in another 20, 30 years, everybody might be looking around saying, wow, we're sort of back on top again with a level of predominant power. Now, that, that presumes that we solve some of our big problems because you know, if you look at projections of deficits, debt, discretionary spending available in 20 years, if we don't really change the course we're on, the United States is going to be a very weak power in terms of what we can actually spend money on. So there's things we have to, to solve too. But basically it relates to, as you're looking at grand strategy in the order, are you building one for the medium term or the long term or both? And if you think that we have some medium-term challenges but long-term good prospects, what does that tell you about your grand strategy and the kind of order you want to build? You know, one lesson for me is that a lot of what we've built since 1945 is based on the idea 
that a, a shared order that allows countries, that, that provides countries with institutions and other ways of pursuing shared interests in an increasingly integrated and globalized world is good for everybody and is kind of the default order that you want, whether you're on top or whether you're one among equals. So I think there's a lot of policy wisdom that we could build that kind of it takes an agnostic view about whether the United States is going to rise back up again. But if we do, that order, that kind of shared order, multilateral, is still very much in our interest. So I think that we can, we can answer 70 or 80 percent of the questions we need to answer about grand strategy and the order, uh, whether or not we assume that you know Friedman is right. Very interesting. I guess it remains to be seen. We're definitely in interesting times. I don't think anyone was expecting Brexit. I don't think anyone was expecting Trump. I think few people were expecting what happened in Colombia with the FARC referendum. And it just means that it's becoming difficult to predict. But it does seem like there, there are some larger world historical processes at play that can inform our policymaking ultimately. Now, something that I always like finishing my interviews with, especially when I'm speaking with an expert on the subject, is this. Was there a question that I should have asked or that we should have asked that we didn't? Uh, not really. I mean, I think, you know, the, you, you've sort of, you've just mentioned, we've talked about it a little bit. The obvious kind of immediate implication of all of this stuff right now is we have an administration coming that's been elected by the American people. It's coming in at least, in theory, having promised a lot of things during the campaign that take direct aim at many of the leading assumptions, institutions, and rules of the international order as we know it. So from the standpoint of the role of the United States, the biggest question over the next several years is how far does the administration in power actually attempt to fulfill those promises? And how much damage does that, how much damage does that do to the order as we know it, and what are the implications for U.S. interests? Because we will be living in a very different world if a lot of the promises of the incoming administration are fulfilled. And the, the bipartisan agreement of the last 70 years, and an agreement reflected, by the way, in a number of the appointees, like General Mattis of the administration, said and written many things that endorsed many aspects of the international order and the U.S. role in it. Everything we've assumed in a bipartisan way, the, the core bipartisan assumptions of U.S. national security strategy, would suggest that attacking these institutions of order in the way that, that may happen would be ultimately dangerous to U.S. interests. So, you know, in terms of we, we started this project, you know, as you say, without necessarily an assumption that Donald Trump would be elected. We weren't really taking any political, you know, and we still don't take any sort of political approach to this. But what's now interesting to watch is that the challenges to the order that we saw in place have now become vastly more significant than we would have assumed. Because when the leader of the order starts to question its basic assumptions, it's very difficult for the thing to hold together. So we're going to be watching the most profound experiment in recalibrating America's role in the world order than we've seen since the Second World War. There's a lot at stake, and all these kind of theoretical issues now have a really significant immediate implication for Americans because stuff we've taken for granted is about to be challenged, and the a lot of taken-for-granted benefits or roles of this order could be upset, and then we're going to learn what that's, what that's going to mean. So, you know, we've talked about it a bit, but that's the only thing I would emphasize at the end is if we were having this conversation, had Hillary Clinton or Mitt Romney or a lot of people, you know, George Bush, either George Bush, been elected, we'd be talking about a fairly, fairly narrow range of possible policy alterations at the margins of this shared vision of order. We are now talking about uh, a complete ground-up reevaluation of what's going on. And it's 
more fundamental than anything we've seen in almost a century. Between reading your paper and this interview, one of the things I, I keep reflecting on is sort of how much bigger the game is than you see in day-to-day -day news, day-to-day -day politics that is, you know, it's discussed in the popular media. It's something I'm really grateful that you guys are doing. I know Sanders grateful, and I know our listeners are grateful. Remember, you can go check out Rand's project. It's called Building a Sustainable International Order. We will link it on our website. Before we go, Michael, thank you so much for joining us and for your work on this project. I think it's really important. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And as we head out, uh, I just want to remind you guys, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. And this is Andrew signing off. See you next time, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.